week? Well, guess what? It's a true honor to have producer, engineer, mixer, award-winning, awesome person, <laughs> Bill Schnee here uh, via Zoom talking to me. Bill, thank you for taking time to talk. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. So listen, I have to get a couple things out of the way. I'm going to do a little name dropping just so people have some understanding of the short list of people that you've worked with. And let's start with just some high level. So Grammy award winning, Emmy award winning, Dove award winning, over 125 gold and platinum records with your fingerprints on them. Mixed over 50 top 20 singles, an amazing breadth of work. That includes working with jazz luminaries, pop luminaries, uh, all kinds of projects, including film soundtracks. Okay, very briefly, I'm going to just, I'm going to name drop a little bit. Check this out. Ringo Starr, Marvin Gaye, Whitney Houston, Pointer Sisters, Dire Straits, Leo Sayer, Neil Diamond, Huey Lewis in the News, Barbara Streisand, Chicago, Steely Dan, Rod Stewart, Miles Davis, Marcus Miller, Bob James, Al Jarreau, George Benson, Natalie Cole. And that's really just the beginning of it. And uh, for those who want to go on your uh, website and see your full list or Wikipedia, the page just doesn't stop. So it's a truly an honor to have you here to talk about some things. And most importantly, you've got an incredible new book out. And I want to hear a few details about the book. It's called Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. Bill Schnee, thank you for joining me. <laughs> well, like I say, it's my pleasure. So age old question, why'd you write the book? <laughs> well, as you illustriously pointed out, I've had a very wide uh, and deep career, been very fortunate to have success in virtually every genre. No one ever mentions the country records for some reason. But anyway, there aren't that many. True. Um, but when you do anything in life long enough, you come up with a bunch of stories. But I love storytelling. You know, halfway through my career, I thought I really would rather be in movies and direct movies because that's what great directors are as storytellers. But wow. I've always been telling stories, and people would say, why don't you write a book? And I said, eh, okay. But it was, uh, there were three people in a row in four weeks that asked me, and they all had a different take on it, but it was the third one that really did it. And that was a producer of a Brazilian artist that I had just mixed, and they took me to dinner, and, you know, as we're chatting, they said, you know, how did you get started? And I started talking about it, and they said, you know, the producer said, you know, you really should write a book. And I went, yeah, I've heard that before. And he said, no, really. The record business as we know it was born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s, and peaked in the 70s going into the 80s. It was a very short time, a very iconic time, never to be repeated again. And you were there. And it was the, and you were there that got me. Because the biggest reason I never thought about writing a book was, it's just seemed too self-serving. I'm actually a very shy person. And the idea of, I did this, then I did that, then I did this, then I did that, never appealed to me. But when he said you were there, I realized I could tell stories that I had nothing to do with that were also from behind the scenes and other sessions and you know friends and other musicians and whatnot. And <clears throat> that appealed to me. So I got in the car uh, after the dinner and called my wife and said, I think I'm going to write a book. Well, listen, follow up on that. How did you physically do it? What was your process? And tell me about that. Well, 
<laughs> I started talking it into my iPhone, <laughs> literally, until I realized, wait a minute, I got to transcribe this and whatnot. So I fairly quickly switched over to, to a laptop and I just started telling stories, you know. The truth is I couldn't have done it without the internet to help me with dates and jogging the memory. It, it was just wonderful for that. But that's how it got started. I just started telling stories. And when I looked at allmusic.com and started looking at early records, and uh, that would, oh, I remember this. And I'd start in on that kind of thing. Funny thing about allmusic.com is that when it came out, I had started discography quite a few years ago just to have it. And then when the internet became popular, and the, boy, that sounds like an old guy, doesn't it? When the internet <laughs> became popular and, uh, and all music came out, I went, you know, this is really cool. I didn't remember this. I didn't remember that. But the funny thing about it is, as we all know, hopefully we all know, the internet makes mistakes. And what cracks me up is that when I started the book, there were two, maybe three, but two for sure albums that were on there that I know I did that now are gone. <laughs> I don't know what wow. happened. <laughs> One of the first ones, Barbara Streisand, Barbara Jones Streisand, it, it's not on there anymore. I don't understand it. But anyway, that, that was the process. Hmm. And uh, I started just playing leapfrog and I got into a groove that was just wonderful. Just I was really enjoying it. Well, one of the fascinating things about the book, and I'll give a little secret away, is there's a keyword, right, a key in the book that unlocks some additional chapters on your website, yeah. which is a great interactive idea and, you know, gives people a little bonus. And yeah. How'd that happen? Well, it was simple. When I was fairly far along in the process, there was an artist that I produced that went on to be a writer herself. She's put out two books on singing and writing a third. And she introduced me to uh, the people at Hal Leonard. So when I spoke to the head of the company, I said, you know, I've got a book. It's, you know, I'll be done with it first quarter of next year. And he said, oh, well, I definitely want to read it. And I said, how long should it be? And he said, no more than 100,000 words. I said, ooh, I'm at 140 and still going. And he said, that's what editors are for. So there you go. But it ended up, he asked me to go back and do some technical stuff because there wasn't very much technical in the book. I think some people are going to be disappointed in it. More technically oriented people might may have been looking for more. I don't know. But it was 160,000 words that had to go down to 100. And somebody suggested that I should get a uh, website and put a key in the book and go to the website, put in the key, and you'll get to read the 60,000 words or two-thirds of, of another book of stuff that didn't make it into the hardcover. So that's what it's I did. It's great. And it's not one story. You've got a bunch of sort of chapters that are there, and I really enjoyed them. I've been reading the book. I've been up on the site with the keyword. Really great. You know, let's talk about that. You know, with, you mentioned the technical aspect. You know, certainly there is an expectation out there that, oh, this phenomenal engineer with this incredible track record, you know, I, I want to buy his book because I'm going to learn how to mic a kick drum, right? And this is a thing. But that's not what your book is. And it's also not dishing dirt, right? There's some, how should we say it? You know, there's just some juicy stories or some interesting behind the scenes, but it's really an accessible, good read. And as someone who has spent time in the recording studio and a background as a musician, and I enjoy the business, I consider your book a must read. The way it reads, the stories that are in it, and what it gets to. And 
specifically what I mean by that and what I enjoyed was kind of the emotion, the ties that happen between things. You might be talking about George Benson or you might be talking about, you know, Boss Gags or Huey Lewis, but you summarize these things inside and outside of the recording studio. And that is what's so interesting. Good. Well, I'm glad you picked up on that. That's what I tried to do. I didn't want to write a lot of dirt. Uh, there are definitely a few things in there. My wife says, are you sure you want to put that in writing? And I, I said, yeah, it's fine. I think it's fine. But my favorite one, I don't know if you've gotten to this yet, is the yeah. where we talked about egos. Have you gotten there yet? The one that... Uh, is this Mark Knopfler? Is it that part? No, no that's, he that's doesn't the, have an ego. No. Right? You know, one of the most down-to-earth normal human beings I talk about. There's a few of those. But no, yeah. but you know, some of the artists are a bit self-absorbed. And I had a situation with a huge artist that was just a little, maybe a lot left of center. And the funny <laughs> thing about it is I never say who it is. And I did it on purpose, not because I wouldn't say it, but because I wanted to leave the readers going, he forgot to say who it is. No, I didn't forget. I did it on purpose. In fact, <laughs> I probably, now that I think about it, maybe I should go ahead and say who it is in the uh, behind the scenes. Maybe that'd be a a fun thing to do for the people that buy the book and then go sure. after that. Yeah, that would be a little extra keyword addendum. <laughs> uh, you know, there's another really interesting thing which I enjoyed too, and I think you handled it really well in the book, where you talk about your best list, right? And you just kind of name drop some people like, you know, Al Jarreau, you know, the best scat singer, like these different little things, best dressed, Miles Davis. And you don't go on about it. You just kind of name them and, and just put them there. And it, it's a really, really good section there. Yeah, there, there were several things, those kind of concepts that came to me while I was writing the book. I think that comes right after the little paragraph or whatever on pseudonyms, which came after uh, Barry Manilow, since that's a pseudonym. <laughs> so then I just put these superlatives, the best that and the best that. My wife would not let me put the best butt in rock and roll because it was Rod Stewart and she didn't think that oh, was appropriate. But I, of course, have heard that. And uh, I would like to tell you a funny story. This is a true story that has to do with Rod Stewart's butt, if you don't mind. <laughs> My team, it. we worked on Rod Stewart Live at Royal Albert Hall, the DVD. This was about 2005, plus or minus, something around there. And when we were developing the graphic design, and of course, with DVDs, we'd have menus, right? And we had a page for bonus features, which were sort of outtakes and different things. And I had the design team put a very nice still shot of Rod Stewart from behind. So the little inside joke was bonus features and it was his butt. <laughs> and so, you know, we sort of, it was a joke, but we were also kind of like, it's kind of an insider thing. Like, <laughs> oh, you know, like there's his butt. And it stayed in the project we are told, all the way up the food chain to Clive Davis at J Records. It went all the way for final approval. And somebody in a meeting said, wait a second, we can't have his butt on the menu there. So yeah. there it, you it, go. It's kind of funny how he, he's known for that. I, I've never had the guts to bring it up. Well, you're not alone, I guess, in the butt fascination of Rod Stewart. So I didn't think we'd go there in this podcast, Bill. Yeah. So, um, now, listen, there's some projects you've worked on, which are fascinating. The songbook project with Rod. Coming back to the book. So this has just hit the stores, right? It's available on Amazon and Target and Barnes and Noble. It's all over the place, right? Yeah, funny enough, this afternoon, 
I was with my wife and I went and stopped at Barnes and Noble. I had to go in and actually look and pick one up and took a picture to send to my kids. It's like, wow, I would have never have thought. You really, that's interesting. You never would have thought. No, it just didn't appeal to me until that producer said this thing about, you know, you were there. And then the funny thing is that when we got to editing, the editor wanted all the meat and potatoes. So a lot of that got taken out. So it's behind the scenes, I guess. But I wanted more of those kind of fun stories that I didn't do. So in essence, I've written the book I never wanted to write with regard to that. <laughs> I did this, then I did that. Well, you know, it's it's nice with the best of both worlds. I mean, the, the book's a manageable amount of work. I'm looking at the ebook, of course. But you have those extra chapters that are on your site. So it's nice. This is a modern way to handle it, interactive. People get to go to your site, too. They see your credits there. I want to back up a little bit. You know, you've operated your own studio, right, uh, Schnee? studio in LA for a number of years and until recently if I'm correct right and Larrabee took that over yeah when the record business started going down and funny enough I think the moment was a Rod Stewart record I was doing with him and when I say started going down you know technology started to allow everybody to have cheap home studios and the reason I built a studio was to have a room with a sound which very few studios have all of the studios built in the 50s, almost all the studios in the 50s and early 60s did, because they were more re about recording ensembles and less about isolation from multi-track. So I, I got a studio with a sound, a great, great sounding room. We built the electronics. I had tube mic preamps out in the studio, transistor mic preamps on the console. I have a huge collection of tube microphones. I believe they'd be the best that were ever made. And it was a very, very special place and a huge part of me and my personality. Well, I'm doing this Rod Stewart record, and I, the front office has me pick up the phone, and it's the production girl at uh, the label saying, what's with your bill? And I went, uh, excuse me? Well, it's way too much. I said, well, I'm sorry, but that's what the studio is, and uh, that's what we charge. She said, we've been paying close to half of that these days for a studio. And right then, you know, here's a guy with no budget, you know, whatever. He's happy there doing what he wants to do. And th that kind of pressure is coming on me. And that's when it started. So anyway, I, I didn't want to, you know, bastardize the thing. I would rather have walked away from it, which is what I did. I'm not sure that was the best idea or not. It still hurts to this day, needless to say. But Larrabee had all mixed rooms next door. And Manny Marquin, a great engineer, had, you know, we obviously become friends. And if you ever want to sell this studio, and at the time, you know, it was like, eh, I'm not going to sell it, but whatever. And then one day I called him and said, now about buying the studio. So it's still in operation. And uh, he's having the same kind of trouble that I was having. You know, it's just, that's just what the record business is about. And now I, both when I'm in LA working or here in Nashville working, I take advantage of that on a production level because I can get great studios a lot cheaper than you could 10 years ago. Yeah, sure enough. You know, it's interesting. I mean, it, you know, those personal decisions, like you mentioned about the Rod Stewart project and things that have guided you in your career, that really comes through in the book. There are a number of examples of that where you're really talking about value judgments and you're talking about decisions being made. I think that's one of the highlights of your writing. A common question I like to ask people in the music business, and it's, it's attached to this kind of value judgment idea, decision making, is, you know, you touch on this in the book a little bit. Music industry 
has some scoundrels in it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there, there are some people who are difficult to deal with or work with. Some would say the music business has more of them than, quote, normal business. Yeah, I decided to put in there and in the behind the scenes, the got a key page on my website opens up with, some, I can't remember the title, but you don't always win. And it's like four or five things that were anything but the positive for the way they come out. I know there's a really good one in the book about a record that was stolen, literally stolen. I was making a deal at Capitol Records on an artist on a single that I knew was a hit, and it was literally stolen and put out by somebody else, a big artist. Well, I know you also have the stories about credits. And, and this is fascinating, too. I mean, some of how you attached yourself to projects, you know, hey, I'll I'll work on this or I want a shot at mixing this. But, you know, you've got to agree to, you know, go down this pathway. And yeah, you're, really I think interesting. You're, thinking, you're probably thinking of that Marvin Gaye live album. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, which is a fascinating story. Yeah, I had mixed several albums for Motown in the early 70s and was very perturbed because it didn't say mixed by Bill Schnee. It said, special thanks, Bill Schnee. And one of my main mentors, Richie Podler, unbelievable engineer producer, had told me early, early on that the credits that you get are more important than the money that you make from a project because the money will get spent, but the credits will earn you the next gig and the next gig. So when Suzanne DePass, who was Barry Gordy's right-hand girl, called me and said, uh, come in for a meeting. Uh, we're, Marvin's going to do a live album. He hasn't sung in three or four years. We're kind of concerned about it, but it's a one-shot, meaning you get a rehearsal in the afternoon, and that night's the performance. And I said, okay, but I, just on a couple of conditions. And she said, what's that? I said, first of all, I would like it to say, recorded by Bill Schnee. She said, oh, not a problem. <laughs> and then I said, secondly, I'd like a shot at mixing it. If Marvin doesn't want to use the mix, that's fine, but I at least want a shot at mixing it. And she said, absolutely. Well, you know, one out of two isn't that bad. <laughs> because oh, because uh, I didn't get a shot at mixing it, but you know, somehow, whether you believe in luck or God or something, 20 years later, Motown is sold and Barry Gordy's out of the picture and Suzanne DePass. And they have a girl that runs special products at Motown. And she called me up and said, we have an album that we would like you to remix. It's Marvin Gaye Live. And I went, what? I said, I recorded that. She said, I know. I mean, it was like, a, it was a pinch me moment because, not because it was the most unbelievable thing that's ever happened, like being in the room with three Beatles or something, but like that would ever <laughs> happen. But, well, yeah. <laughs> but it was like, since when is a very successful platinum album get remixed? For what reason? 20 years later. But I didn't argue. I just, I said, I would love to. So I actually did get to mix it. And unfortunately, Marvin was no longer with us, so he didn't get to hear it. But uh, there you go. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. Uh, there's the detail of the little Stevie Wonder <laughs> cut on the end of the reel. Yeah. Right? Now, see, there, there's one of the toughest jabs at record companies because they all do this. You know, the, what is the lifeblood of a record company? What's their assets? It's the albums that yeah. they make. So yeah. obviously, one of the most important things in the running of a record company is to make sure that you know where all your assets are because, you know, for future development and repackaging and anything and everything. So I did another album with Marvin, which is a quite long story, but one of my favorite albums that I, I've ever worked on because of the story. 
It was actually recorded in 1965 on three track. A little known fact to me, even who was a Marvin fan, it was that back when he started, he was a huge fan of the Sinatra type singers, which you would never have thought. And so he decided to do an album like that. And he started in New York and he got seven songs in and he stopped it, called it quits because he said, I just don't like the way I'm singing these songs. I haven't lived enough life. Uh, I can't deliver these lyrics properly. And that was that. And so when 8-Track came out a few years later, he transferred the music, the two tracks of music to an 8-Track and went in and tried. Now he had several options, six to be exact, uh, six more options to try vocals, and he still wasn't happy. And then in 1979, when he had, by then he was very famous and had built his own studio on Sunset in Hollywood, he went in and in two weeks did all the songs, two or three of them with different lyrics, which I wondered what the <laughs> publishers thought of that. But the main thing that's so great about this album, which is called Vulnerable, by the way, is that he had developed his singing style of backgrounds. And so you have basically a, let's call it a Sinatra jazz type album with Marvin's voice to begin with, and then these great backgrounds that only he could do. And it's just one of my favorite records. But when I got the tape, it was now on 24 track. He did all the backgrounds and, and vocals on a 24 track. And by, <clears throat> by that many transfers, the sound of the two tracks of music were so noisy that some of the beginnings were more noise than music. Wow. So I got them to send me the three track, the original three track from 1965. We transferred it to a computer, Pro Tools, and we were able to lock it up with the analog tape so that I could get the music off of the three track and the vocals off the 24. They had hired Marvin's engineer because this engineer, whose name escapes me, had the only cassette of the rough mixes that he and Marvin did in 1979 uh, wow. that showed which vocal takes and whatnot he wanted. So he came and told us stories about you know how it went and everything. And by the way, this album, Marvin said that this was his favorite album that he'd ever done. And when he took it to Barry, he said, I finally finished the album. And he played it for him and Barry said, you know, you can't put this out. You're Marvin Gaye. You're an R&B icon. This isn't the kind of music people want. And oh, wow. he was obviously a little bit ahead of his time. Who knows what would have happened if he'd done it. But in any case, the engineer said that that was one of the reasons he left the label the next year and went to CBS. But back to the what you originally asked about, which was Stevie Wonder, when I got the three track, <laughs> it was hysterical because there's, as I said, seven songs. But on the tape, there was an eighth song. And I went to that, and it was Fingertips by little Stevie Wonder. Oh, man. You would think that the, the song that brought him prominence in the world of music, because that was the first thing any of us ever heard from Stevie Wonder, was that live recording. And it wasn't marked on the box. So I wrote a, a note on the box to the tape librarian. By the way, the eighth song on here is not Marvin, but Stevie Wonder. You might want to find a proper home for it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, dear archivist. <laughs> oh, man, that's crazy. You know, you teased the Beatles story, so I wanted to tee you up on that, you know, which I sort of look at as the almost Beatles reunion moment, you know, would you mind telling me that? Of course, this is Ringo, back goes back to Ringo, right? Right. So the Beatles had been broken up for a couple of years and Richard Perry, a fabulous producer that I did a lot of work with, had become friendly with Ringo when he was in England doing Harry Nielsen. And they 
talked about working together someday. And so one day Richard called me and said, I'm going to do an album with Ringo and I'd like you to do it with me. And I said, great. And so we started the record and a couple of days in, George popped in. He came over from London, heard what was going on. He popped in. And so now we had two of them in the room. And then the following Monday, lo and behold, Richard tells me, by the way, on Monday, Lennon is coming in. He's written a song as well. And the whole thing of what the record was, was I interpret as the, the group, the other three going, let's give Ringo a leg up. You know, they knew they were all going to have successful solo careers, but let's get him a good boost here off the get-go. So cool. that's what it was. So Lennon came in, and yes, I had three of the four Beatles, the only time three of them played together after the breakup, or ever would. And unfortunately, Paul, the bad blood that had existed between he and Lennon was pretty much over. And if Paul could have come in the country, I'm pretty sure we would have had a Beatles reunion, but he wasn't allowed in something about a drug bust. So for yeah, his song, yeah. Richard and I went to England and recorded him there. And so you were tracking in, in L.A.? With Ringo. We, yeah, everything but Paul's song was recorded at Sunset Sound in Hollywood. Yeah. And then wow, Paul's nice. song was recorded at the Apple Studios. Now, I wanted to ask you about that. In a previous podcast episode, I spoke to Piers Plaskett, you know, formerly of SSL, but got an early start in his career at Apple Studios. Can you relate a little bit what it was like working at Savile Row over there at Apple Studios? What was that like? Well, of course, you know, a lot of emotion for me, you know, this 23-year-old, I think I was 23, wow. uh, 25 maybe, now that I think about it. And of course, that's, you know, the rooftop, that's where the rooftop concert was. And um, it wasn't the greatest studio, to be honest, compared to the EMI studios where they did all their recordings. It wasn't the greatest studio. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't the greatest. But it was uh, great fun. And what amazed me was every day when you came to work, there were girls outside waiting for a beetle to come in or out and they were there constantly i mean it was just wow. unbelievable to see that I, <laughs> power I was, of the fab four yeah absolutely uh, I, you know really just the dumb question you know just assuming you're a beatles fan is that just an obvious question to ask yes i was at the risk of having rocks thrown at me when i was young it was more about the beach boys than the beatles but i was definitely a beetle fan yeah, that's okay. I, th I think the Beach Boys did some cool stuff, I think, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> Especially with someone uh, with an ear. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the East Main Podcast. This is Brian Brodeur. Please don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and leave us a good rating. We'd really appreciate it. If you want to drop us a line, you can, of course, visit our website, eastmainmedia.com, and follow us on social media at East Main Media. And as always, please stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening.